If you would, uh, turn in your Bibles with me this morning once again to the Gospel of John. We are in our fourth week of studying this account of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, written by one of Jesus' closest friends and followers, the Apostle John. And last week we finished the introduction to the book, the first 18 verses, which is known as the prologue. It is a section that we uh, saw was lofty in its themes was rich in its metaphors, but now we begin to move into the the narrative of Jesus' life. After telling us that He is a witness to the light, the one who was in the beginning, John is now going to flesh out this witness. Not the Apostle John's witness, per se, but the John the baptizer's witness. We're going to introduce him in a minute, as well as introduce the one that he is witnessing to. The Apostle John, in his writing of this account of the Lord Jesus, doesn't waste any time. We've talked about this briefly. He jumps right into, after the prologue, jumps right into the adulthood of Jesus of Nazareth, right into the start of Jesus' ministry, no nativity account, no boyhood stories, just here we go. And so here we go. If you're able, I encourage you to stand this morning for the reading of God's Word out of honor to Him. John chapter 1 verses 19 through 34 is where we will set our hearts for the next few moments. Listen as I read. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. And so they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. And they asked him, then why are you baptizing? If you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet. And John answered, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him. And he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is He of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. This is the Word of God. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. Not too long ago, I went to see the movie Air. 
in the movie theater. I don't know if you've heard about this movie or seen the preview. It's the story of uh, the greatest basketball player of all time, Michael Jordan, but specifically his revolutionary shoe deal with Nike, which happened at the very beginning of his career. You see, Michael Jordan was at the beginning of basketball players acquiring for themselves what now is just commonplace, signature shoes. Shoes that in some cases they had a part in designing, but at the very least, shoes that bear their name. We live in a world of branding, even more so now than back when Michael Jordan was in college. Personal branding, even in team sports, it's all about the personal brand. Athletes want to capitalize on their name recognition and their popularity and for monetary reasons and other reasons draw attention to themselves in a variety of different ways. You know, that whole thing of personal branding, it fits well within our day and age, doesn't it? It used to be in the olden days, and it still is the case in many cultures around the world, that thinking too highly of yourself was problematic. It was not good for you, and it was not good for others. Well, times have changed. Today we believe the opposite. We hear the mantra that thinking too low of yourself, that's actually the problem. Well, why do I set our hearts there for a moment? Because our passage today begins with an account of one who isn't about his personal brand. In fact, he could care less about what people think of him. And when you examine the one whose shadow he wants to be in, you understand why. And so today, for the next few minutes, we're going to look at these two men that are introduced to us in this passage this morning, using two exhortations to focus and challenge and hang our thoughts this morning. The first one is this, see and hear the voice that points to Jesus. See and hear the voice that points to Jesus. The account of this life of Jesus begins here briefly with the account of a man named John. Not John, the author of this book, John the Apostle. John the Apostle never mentions himself, at least not by name. He does in vague ways. But no, here we're talking about, we're introduced to John the Baptizer, a relative of Jesus. He was, of course, introduced to us briefly in verse 6, a verse that we already looked at. He was said to, to be there, sent from God, but we don't know much about him. And John doesn't give us a whole lot more to go on. Luke, however, informs us that John's dad was a priest named Zechariah, and his mom's name was Elizabeth. She was barren, and yet the Lord miraculously opened up her womb around the same time that Jesus was miraculously conceived in Mary. 
We learn also that he was born for a unique task, that he was filled with the Holy Spirit in the womb and destined to do what we see him doing here in John. Matthew records the fact that he was a rugged dude. Matthew 3, verse 4, Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. In short, John the Baptist was conceived, born, and sent by God to be a prophetic witness, not to himself, but to Jesus. So we know a little bit now about who this John is, but the guys on the ground here in the first century, they don't have a clue. And so begins in John's account, John the Apostle's account, an interrogation of sorts. Who the heck are you? And it's a questioning that comes, you see in our text, it comes from the Jews. Now, of course, Jesus was a Jew. John himself, the apostle, was a Jew. But when John uses this term, and he uses this term a lot in his gospel, some 68 times to be exact, he almost always uses it in a negative, hostile sense. And so there's these men who have been sent from the Jews, and they've come out to try to determine why these masses of people are coming to hear this guy's message and to receive his baptism, a baptism that we'll get to in just a moment. Now, in the first century, there were lots of messianic expectations among the Jewish people. And so they have some idea of who this might be. When they come to ask him, who are you? John doesn't even make them ask whether he's the Christ, meaning the Messiah, meaning the long-awaited promised one. He says, I'm not him, just to get it out there. I'm not him. Well, who are you? Are you Elijah, they ask. Elijah was this significant and familiar Old Testament prophet that never actually died, but he was swept into heaven, 2 Kings 2 tells us, and he was expected to return. Malachi said in Malachi 4-5, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. John says, no, I'm not him. Interestingly enough, Jesus will later state in his ministry that John was actually the fulfillment of those words in Malachi. Listen to Matthew 11, verses 13 and 14. Jesus says, For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. But John says, I'm not him. Well, are you the prophet, they say. Moses, the most significant figure in Old Testament history, he spoke in Deuteronomy 18 of one whom the Lord would raise up, a final prophet greater than him and all others who would speak the word of God definitively. And John says, nope, I'm not the prophet either. I'm the voice. I'm the voice. The one spoken of in Isaiah now, John just quotes from Isaiah 40, verse 3, but I want to read the fuller context of the passage he's quoting. 
Isaiah 40, verse 1, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain and hill made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And if you can't help but think of the Holy Eucharist when you hear that, you're not alone. This was a significant passage for the Jews. And this was a significant statement then that John the Baptist was making. Just like one would prepare for the arrival of a dignitary, John is paving the way for the revelation of the glory that we talked about last week. The glory who is the Word, who is the light, who is the life, who is Jesus. This isn't about John. It's about the one whose sandals he's not even worthy to untie. That was a slave's task, untying the sandals. And John says, I can't even do that with this guy. See the voice pointing to Jesus. So that's a little bit about the man, but what is his message? I mean, after all, why are they so exercised? about what he's doing. Well, you notice who they sent to ask these questions. They sent the priests. They sent the Levites. We learn in verse 24 that the they wasn't just Jews, but the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the self-proclaimed guardians of everything Jewish. The strict group of Jews who were meticulous and serious about the observance, not just of Old Testament law, but extra-biblical tradition as well. So the Pharisees sent the Levites and the priests because John is baptizing. He has given himself the right to perform this sign of cleansing for the forgiveness of sins without bringing a priest himself, and he's not anywhere near the temple or the tabernacle. Who does he think he is? Who has given you this authority? And then there are his words. We don't hear much of what he's saying in the book of John, but let me play for you a clip from Luke chapter 3. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, this is John the Baptist, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and so not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able to from these stones raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Yikes. He's performing a priestly function. And far from tickling ears, John is preaching repentance and a call to the Christ who is to come. He doesn't care about his popularity. And indeed, this kind of rhetoric will get him thrown into prison and eventually it will cost him his head, literally. 
see and hear the voice pointing to Jesus. Well, before we move on, if you know and love the one to whom he points, the one whose way that he prepares, then in some small way, I think there's an encouragement here to be your own voice pointing to Jesus. I'm not putting any of us on par with John the baptizer, but we've talked about the witness of John while being totally unique is a challenge for us and our lives, forgetting ourselves and exalting the one who is worthy. This is not a despising of yourself. This is the joy of self-forgetfulness. Listen to this quote. I'm not sure who said it, wrote it. Maybe C.S. Lewis. Humility is not thinking more of yourself or less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. So who am I primarily? I'm a child of God. I'm a moon (laughs) reflecting the light, the light of another. I'm a witness. I'm just a voice. I'm the hands and feet of my Savior. I'm an instrument in my Redeemer's hands. That's who I am. And that's what's most important about me. We sing the hymn, we don't sing it this morning, may the mind of Christ my Savior, may the love of Jesus fill me as the waters fill the sea, Him exalting, self-abasing, this is victory. May His beauty rest upon me as I seek the lost to win, and may they forget the channel, seeing only Him. That's my prayer for myself, that's my prayer for us as the body of Christ. And that's what John the Baptist, the voice, was all about. But let's look briefly now at the focus of John the baptizer's life, the reason for John's gospel, the hope for us this morning, and and the one who we will flesh out his life for the weeks to come through the account of John. It's the second exhortation. And I'm just going to say what John said. Behold, the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God. That's what I call you to do this morning. That statement isn't just for first century folks who witnessed Jesus walking towards John that day. It's for us here in Edmonds in 2023. The Apostle John's recording of These couple of days and the remarks that he records from John the Baptist make at least two scandalous claims about this Jesus who's walking towards him. We could talk more about this. We will talk more in the weeks to come. But let me just say them briefly. One, he makes the scandalous claim that this man is the Son of God. He makes the declaration simply at the end of our passage, but it's actually hinted at prior as well. John opened his gospel with the statement of the pre-existence of the Word, right? We talked about that. We unpacked some of that Christology. But John the Baptist, in quoting Isaiah 40, proclaims this as well. He says, make straight the way of the Lord. When you read that in Isaiah 40, it's in all capital letters, meaning it's the covenant name of the Lord. It is Yahweh, make straight The way of Yahweh, the Creator and the covenant-making God, He is coming 
to us. He has come to us. That's significant. That's what John wants to hammer home in his gospel. That you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you would have life in his name. But the main descriptor that we see here in this passage this morning is the second scandalous claim. Jesus is the Lamb of God. Jesus is the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God. Now here's the question, and this is an interesting one. I know what many of you envision when you hear this, but is that what John the Baptist envisioned? I'm not so sure it is. You see, I'm not sure that John the Baptist had an understanding at this point of what Jesus' ministry was really going to look like. Maybe he did, but it sure seems like he didn't. Now, why do I say that? After all, in Matthew 11, he expresses some confusion. This is, at this point, John the Baptist has already been imprisoned for his rhetoric, specifically against Herod. And he sends his disciples to ask Jesus this question. Are you the one who is to come, or should we look for another? You see, he had heard of Jesus' healing. He had heard of all the crazy stuff Jesus was doing. But he had also heard that Jesus was preaching peace rather than a sword. Jesus was talking a lot about suffering rather than talking about triumph. You see, I think John the Baptist, like most Jews, didn't expect a suffering Messiah. They expected a victorious one. See, the disciples, they too had a growing, developing understanding of Jesus' ministry. They were confused about who Jesus was and what he came to do years into his ministry. They still were expecting something other than what he often did. And so when John the Baptist cries out, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, what he could very well have been saying and thinking in his mind is here comes the warrior lamb. And you're saying the warrior lamb, what are you talking about? Well, in first century apocalyptic literature, in many of the writings, non-canonical books like the book of Enoch, like the Testament of Joseph, for instance, they spoke about a warrior lamb who would come into the world, who would destroy sin and evil in the world, restoring love for God and love for neighbor and love for God's peace. And I think this is what John was likely proclaiming. Here comes the lamb who will lead us into battle. Here comes the warrior lamb who will judge the world, who will clean things up. And just so you know that this doesn't come from Nate Hitchcock's mind, this comes from other scholars' minds who I have learned from. And it's an idea that seems to be further confirmed by Matthew chapter 3, verse 12. Listen to what John the Baptist says there about Jesus. His winnowing fork is in his hand. 
And he will clear the threshing floor and gather wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And then there is this reference that John makes to the Spirit's descent on Jesus. John had already witnessed this when he baptized Jesus. It's not recorded here. It's recorded in the other Gospels. But the coming of the Spirit for the Jews, and often in the Old Testament, was associated with battle. Think about Gideon in Judges 6. Think about Samson in Judges 14. We could give several other examples. So what do we do with this? Well, apparently, John the Apostle is not concerned about recording this statement from John the Baptizer because in the chapters that come, he will make clear that Jesus is the Lamb, meaning the substitutionary sacrificial death for his people. And beyond that, biblical characters often spoke beyond their own knowledge. Isaiah is a prime example of that. All the imagery that so many of you who know and love the Scriptures thought of, Jesus is Abraham's ram caught in the thicket. Jesus is the Passover lamb introduced in Egypt. And that, that all applies to him. We don't have time to read all the passages, but Paul will jump into this image of Jesus as the substitutionary lamb who takes away the sins of the world in his writings, as will the author of Hebrews, as Isaiah did hundreds and hundreds of years earlier when he spoke of the lamb being silently led to the slaughter. Of course, this is the main image that we'll be unpacking and returning to in weeks and weeks to come. But here's the thing. Both images... The warrior lamb and the substitutionary sacrifice for sin. They come together in the book of Revelation. Both understandings of that declaration are true. Whether John the Baptist, whatever he meant when he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, he wasn't wrong. In chapter 5 of Revelation, They fall before the Lamb and they cry, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And then in chapter 17 of Revelation we read this, And they will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them, for He is the Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with Him are called chosen and faithful. Behold the Lamb of God, the Lamb who saves us from our sins by His blood, the Lamb who will conquer by His sword. Two takeaways from our time here this morning. The first is a question. Are you safe from that Lamb of God? And when I say, are you safe from the Lamb of God, I'm talking about the warrior Lamb who will return, who could return this afternoon. Are you safe from Him? And then the second question, are you safe in the Lamb of God? Because safety from the Lamb of God is found in the Lamb of God. He is the one 
who calls you to hide yourself in Him. For He has come for you and He is coming again. And then the second takeaway, brothers and sisters, in a world of personal branding and exaltation of the self, remember, it's not about you. It's not about me. It's about Jesus and how thankful we are it is. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the words of the Apostle John, for the testimony he gives concerning our Savior. Father, we thank you for focusing our vision again on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And because of that death, we have life. Oh, may we be found in Him this day. May all who hear these words be found in Him this day. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.